1: This is Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. My name is Ab Sigler, audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. I am joined each week by New York Times number one best-selling author Scott Sigler and screenwriter Rob Otto. How are you today, gentlemen? Good. I'm doing good. How are you doing, Robbie?
2: I am doing well. I I I feel like I'm ready for a sequel, but uh, <laughs> I'm just talk about the first one today.
1: Uh, So this is episode 78 of Story Smack, and this week we are discussing the 1996 game-changing movie, Scream. Uh, Scott, can you give us the movie guy synopsis?
2: A year after her mother's death, Sidney Prescott and her friends started experiencing some strange phone calls. They later learned the calls were coming from a crazed serial killer in a white-faced mask and a large black robe. His phone calls usually consist of many questions, the main one being, What's your favorite scary movie? Along with much scary movie trivia ending with bloody pieces of innocent lives scattered about the small town of Woodsboro. Oh my
1: goodness, that is so dramatic. Very dramatic, very dramatic. Do you like scary movies? Basically, you get a movie guy voice in the movie. Uh, Hey, tell us about the financial breakdown of this flick. So, as you know, we always like to do this. Back in 1996, Scream cost $15 million to make. Today, that would be about $26.6 million in 2021, 2022 dollars. Um, It made $173 million at the box office, which today would be about $306 million. So, by every account... This movie is a game changer. It made a ton of money. It's I will discuss it about how it sort of was genre genre changing and how it was the best use of the the budget that we've seen a, a lot in horror movies. Um Hey, what's your let's go to high level. What is your favorite Thing from this movie. Okay, so this is really important, everybody listening or watching at home. At this moment, moving forward, this whole movie is a spoiler. Everything we say <laughs> about this movie is a spoiler alert, and this super matters because my favorite thing about this movie is Drew Barrymore, who was arguably one of the biggest stars in the movie, if not the biggest star in the movie in mm-hmm. 1996 when it came out, is not the final girl. She is not the she doesn't. She dies in the main in the opening act, you guys. And I think that's spectacular. I think that changed changed everything. And yeah. uh, what about you, Robbie? What's your favorite part?
2: Yeah, I, I love that. And we will talk later about that because it's it's very uh, you know psycho esque, right? Um, my thing is that, and I'm not sure this is true. I've said this before, and I feel like it's true. This is the first meta. Movie, Right. This is the first movie that knows it's a movie and it kind of references Mm -hmm. other movies like this movie. Right. I mean, they are talking about the rules um, of how to survive a horror movie. And they talk about all the different movies and they bring up directors and they bring up other movies and that kind of stuff. And that's it's it's so meta was what everybody says right now, whenever you're self-referential. That was not a thing 25 years ago. And Mm -hmm. this movie kind of broke that wide open it happened before in smaller doses but usually in comedies this is the first one and it's so intelligently written such a good job screenplay is i have two favorite things number one of course is the screenplay itself which we're going to talk about and the brilliance of stepping outside of the format looking at the format taking that knowledge going back into the movie as Mm -hmm. rob just described it being very meta which was a as far as I know, I've never seen anything like it in a movie before. It's been copied many times. Second favorite thing was having watched basically every slasher flick that has ever been made up until that point. <laughs> uh, the amount of uh, nutshot noises that the killer makes, you know, what? when you when you are. Freddy, Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, they never get hit in the nuts with a beer and go, Oi, oh, oh, smacked in the door. They're like, ah, the Foley guy had a blast. The killer takes an enormous amount of damage. He's smacked in the face with doors. He has windows closed down. He's hit with beer bottles. He gets Kicked in the chest, kicked in the nuts. And it just. Mm-hmm. And every time he. Oof, hey, oof. Yeah. He, he makes a <laughs> noise. He does. That was. Not true. That was also something that had never been done in slasher flicks before. Yeah. Ma- Michael Myers went down a couple times. Freddie might have screamed a couple times, but you never heard anybody go, oh, my arches. You know, you never yeah, heard I that. I know.
1: And that's a really good point because there's a moment where a killer, of course, every great a slasher movie killer has a reason that they are damaged, but once they become damaged, they sort of become impermeable and mm-hmm. superpowered. And that's—I had never thought about that, but that's Not totally true. Case.
2: Yes, it's funny, Scott. When you said there were two things you liked about this, I thought you were going to say Rose McGowan's nipples when she walked <laughs> into the garage because those, say, <laughs> those. Okay, were but two why things. was they?
1: Were they only in that scene? Why were they only I, in that one scene? It was I don't, cold that day.
2: I don't <laughs> it know. was cold they they in that garage, cameo. you guys. It was cold <laughs> in that garage. Made a cameo appearance, and honestly, <laughs> they should have had their own line in the credits because that was, uh, everybody knew who Rose McGowan was after that yes. green shirt, let me tell you. <laughs> okay. Yes, uh, Jen Sherwood, the killers got nards for sure. Are you ready to get into the actors on this? Bit?
1: Yeah, I, I did want to say um, that, yeah, we are reviewing Scream in particular today because next week's what is ostensibly Scream 5? comes out. They have chosen not to call it Scream 5. I wonder if that's a Wes Craven sort of tribute. Um, but they, it's the next Scream comes out uh, I think it's the 14th of yeah. January. So that's why we're doing this. So we're going to start talking about the cast and crew. I'm going to start talking about Kevin Williamson. Kevin Williamson is the screenwriter for this. This is Kevin Williamson, if you're watching, that you see on the screen now. He uh, got this idea, partly in- inspired to write Scream after watching a late night TV documentary about a killer known as... Um, the Gainesville, ra- or, uh, Gaines- Gainesville Ripper, his name was Danny Rowling, and he watched a documentary about that and kind of got the idea. He went to Palm Springs, took him three days to write the first uh, version of this screenplay. Three freaking days. Mm-hmm. Three Come on. days. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's interesting because um, Kevin Williamson, g- I guess, goes on from here to um, become – I don't know what I'll call the John Hughes for this teen horror genre. Like he does so many, he he does. I know what you did in that last summer teaching Mrs. Tangle the faculty. He does then go on to uh to run Dawson's Creek, right Dawson's Creek, which I'm not sure is well, horror because I've never seen but, but in my mind I feel like it is. Some people are very horrified by yeah. that show. So
2: that's uh, I think it fits right in. He
1: um <laughs> he uh listened to the soundtrack for halloween during the weekend that he was writing this movie in pa- this script in palm springs and he cites halloween the original ha- halloween is his all time favorite movie so, so you cool. can sort of see he was always led into the genre he was always a horror fan that kind of thing um the script did spray um blossom into a bidding war the bidding war for the script went on um between all the houses in hollywood until Williamson ultimately accepted Dimension Film's $400,000 offer to buy the screenplay. Which, looking back on what that did for Kevin Williamson and the genre of teen horror uh, thrillers, is you, is is, yeah, in, is a pretty good money? How much is that in today's money? I don't have it off the top of my head, but um, I'm going to guess a billion dollars. Fifteen.
2: It's, yeah. it's it's like it's like times times 70, So still, so yeah. like today today almost, almost a yeah million almost million. Like a 1. Million, yeah yeah something along those lines. But That's you pretty close there's to that. there's a, a good reason for that. You know that it like as Someone who writes screenplays, and Rob writes them too, and it just people who watch movies, the The brilliance of this this screenplay is mm-hmm. is absolutely off the charts. And I think that when they, Dimension Films read this script, they knew right away. Everybody, And I'm going to guess Wes Craven, we'll talk about in a second, probably read the script and like, I'm in, just well, done. And I'm one in. of
1: the things I find about this and most of Kevin Williamson's successes it, is that he understands inherently... How to make a less expensive movie. Yes, there are special effects in this movie, but there's not a ton. There's not ever a ton of CGI. There's not ever a ton of complicated props like for missing limbs or missing eyes or things like that sometimes, but not a lot. And um, I think, you know, he started as an actor. He studied acting and he moved to Hollywood. He has a handful of bit parts, but literally like couldn't get work as an actor and took took a screenwriting class. And the screenplay that came out of that was Teaching Mrs. Tingle, which eventually got made into a movie as well. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if he comes at it from an actor's perspective and like and knows his genre really well. But, but he, comes at, he comes
2: at it from so many perspectives. The The production cost perspective, th- this budget went to the big stars. Mm-hmm. It's it's a normal it's a normal Foley stage set. They may have found some live locations to shoot them in. There's really nothing going on in this that requires any crazy special effects, no, right? Agree. Not at all. And it this movie would have cost next to nothing to make if it wasn't for the star power in it. So I think that's part of the screenplay too. And the too. star director, maybe. And the star, the star director. Yes, directors. yes. I, I would like Craven. to point out that anyone that knows math is yelling at me right now because it's really closer to seven hundred thousand, not one point two million. So let me let me Fortunately, correct that. also. Yeah, um, and the other thing about uh, Kevin Williamson and the idea of the script was that uh, I completely lost my train of thought. So <laughs> it was, but trust me, it was an excellent point. <laughs> if it comes back, let me know I was wrong. Wes Craven actually Damn. wouldn't get away from directing gore. So the man himself turned down screen, scream twice. Even though he was on set, Craven never let Roger Jackson, AKA the ghost face, kill voice. Meet Drew Barrymore or Nev Campbell. Um, Craven thought Ghostface was creepier as a disembodied voice. So he didn't want to create any familiarity with them whatsoever so that when they just, they would just be reacting to the voice by itself. Wes Craven Easter eggs in the movie. Sydney lives at 34 Elm Street. The janitor in the red and green striped sweater is named Fred, is played
1: by Wes Craven. Okay, we watched this last night. No, is he played by? Oh, neat. That's fun. We watched this last night, <laughs> and I knew this coming. I knew that was coming, and I'm pretty sure that guy's name is Frank. Not going to lie to you. Pretty sure it's not Fred in the yeah. actual movie. I think you're right.
2: Movie. I think it's Frank. I'm, I'm telling you, he calls him Fred. It's uh, I don't know where the hell you guys' heads are. Probably wherever <laughs> my other thought went, your guys' brains <laughs> just went with that. No, he says, oh, not you, Fred. He, he says Fred. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. And, and Henry Winkler, for Christ's sake.
1: Oh, come on. I didn't even see, this is what I mean. There's so many stars in this movie yeah. that, he, that we didn't even put in the, in the details, like Henry Winkler, because he's, and Drew Barrymore and, and Rose McGowan. Mm-hmm. Those yeah. are huge names. Yeah,
2: absolutely. But well, tell there about is one Nef, big name tell that, about uh, yes, Campbell. we did put in there, Nev Campbell. And it's funny because at the time, Drew Barrymore was the only real star. In this movie, and we'll get into the whole point that she's gone within the first ten minutes or so. Um, but Nev Campbell, pretty much, you know, she was in the movie The Craft the year before this, and you know, everybody knew her from television. Um, she was uh, Julia Salinger in Party of Five, right? So she was like a TV person who was trying to move into film, and you know, listen, that happens all the time now. Back in the eighties and nineties, if you were a TV person they were reticent to put you in a movie that had any money behind it because they were like they were like we got tv actors we got movie actors and with very few exceptions they are not going to cross over of course it happens all the time now but this was the movie that made her an absolute star a household name she goes on to do wild things right after this which is the next one you know that jumped her up and um it just, this made her career, and yeah. it's so cool, because a lot of times, you know, we get into horror movies and sequels, and it's always a brand new cast, because they got to go out and keep the budget down and go with a bunch of nobodies. The fact that Nev Campbell and some of the other stars keep coming back, including for Scream, which is coming out next week, they're all back. They're all back for the movie, and, and I just think that's how much they realized what this movie did for mm-hmm. them, but also what good writing can do. Because if they would have been bad scripts after the first one, none of them would have come back. Yeah, yeah, totally. They really nailed down. Hey, you want to tell us about Courtney Cox?
1: Sure. Uh, Courtney Cox at this point had been, if you grew up like, I, you know, I'm sort of Courtney Cox's age, and so I sort of grew up with her. Like she already had some fame; she was the Maxima girl. She was uh, she danced in the dark with Bruce Springsteen. She did. She was definitely not the star she is now, thanks to her long run on Friends. But was also filming Friends at this time. Um, she. Uh, had to convince Wes Craven that she could play a bitch since (laughs) all those things that we just talked about, she was this quite wholesome, friendly, happy person uh, on screen, um, and he thought that she was too nice or she could only play nice, so she had to convince him that she could be a bitch so that she could get this role. Um, Also, during the first three films i mentioned this just now she had just she had been part of friends and uh as monica geller she played monica geller throughout the whole run of friends and um didn't ever miss a single day on set for either thing mm-hmm. even though episodic tv films a very very brutal long schedule but they program uh, throughout the first three screen movies she was on, also on friends and the the productions worked together to give her like front-loaded time uh, on this on the Friends set so then she could like fly out Thursday afternoon and do the Scream set and stuff like that so she never missed a day on either set. Yeah. And, uh, and she, I, was, she was a
2: huge TV star at that point. First, absolutely. So it was a dominant yeah. show so for she was sure. a big
1: name. And I mean, back at the back at the beginning of Scream, she was getting to be, she became, all of those people became huge mm-hmm. Friday, yeah. n- or Thursday night, can't miss Thursday night TV but this was actually good for her. And also, of course, you know, in this photo that you see on the screen now, um, Courtney Cox and David Arquette met on the set of Scream and eventually married and had a child.
2: Mm-hmm. They're not together anymore, are they? are not together not anymore. anymore. But speaking of uh, Mr. David Arquette, this is an interesting, interesting guy in this. Before accepting the <laughs> role of Dewey, David Arquette was considered for both parts of Billy and Stu. David's character, Dewey, was originally supposed to die after being stabbed in the back by Ghostface, but Wes Craven liked the character so much they decided to film a shot of Dewey being carried into an ambulance in case audiences also liked the character. Now, this part, I'm not entirely I'm not entirely certain about this. Dewey was the only Scream survivor not to break one of the rules in the climax of the first film. Speaking of climaxes and rules, was he a
1: virgin? Well, I mean, he's 25 and he's got boyish good looks. He says that you know, thanks to my boyish good looks, I had to start working out. Um, he obviously is. Uh, lives at home with his mom and his little sister, I think, in the first movie. Um, but I don't yeah, I know think that we screams. know he's a virgin.
2: I think it screams virgin. Absolutely screams virgin. But <laughs> He definitely does not have sex during the movie. Yeah, for right? sure. And okay. that's the thing. You can't have sex during oh. the movie. So. It's it's not be a virgin it can't have sex during yeah. right but being a virgin obviously ensures that you're not having sex during the movie but but it's
1: also like that this saying. is part of what happens to Sydney's storyline Sydney Prescott's storyline because of course she loses her virginity during the movie mm-hmm. which changes yep. her status and outcome and, and obviously but she fights her way through it cuz she's the final girl but doesn't man
2: doesn't that mean she also survived the rules of the first movie No but he didn't They broke rules and still survived. Yeah, he didn't break break any of the rules. He didn't break any of the rules. Right. right. So if this were a standard horror movie of the day, he, in theory, would have been the only one to survive. Uh, He would have been the final girl because he didn't break any of the rules. Not break rules. rules. Okay, gotcha. Everybody else has seen at least drinking or screwing or something well Rob, now we've got the three, uh, the three bros who kind of yeah. uh, really made this movie. Everybody else is playing straight parts for the most part. And these guys got to be the, the dramatic and comic relief. Matthew Lillard, Skeet, Skeet, Ulrich, and Jamie Kennedy. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's so cool. And, and it's just as A said, you go back and look back now. At the time, there were a bunch of nobodies in this movie. But now you go back and look and it's just like, there's a bunch of everybody's (laughs) in this movie. You recognize pretty much everybody. And it's odd because, um, you know, Lillard and Jamie Kennedy went on to have at least decent careers. Skeet Ulrich is the one that everybody thought was going to be the breakout star, right? Good-looking dude, good actor, right? He has that Johnny Depp vibe. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of the reason he got cast, because they kind of made him, even with his hair, look like Johnny Depp did in Nightmare on Elm Street. That was supposed to kind of be, you know, a little, a little another little nod to Wes Craven, right? Um, and he's the one, he's had some roles, but he never really had a huge breakout role the way that the others did. So um, it's just cool. So you've got, you know, Billy Loomis. Who ends up being one of the killers? Oh, spoiler alert! Um, and then you get Matthew Lillard. He actually auditioned to be Billy Loomis, and essentially they kind of looked at him and go, "You're just too goofy. You, you don't. I can't see you making out uh, with Nev Campbell's character the whole movie." So no. But why don't you come back and try out? Um, you know, for even if you're not going to be Billy, maybe you can be his best friend Stu, right? The ironic part of that is after this movie Matthew Lillard and Nev Campbell dated <laughs> for a while. So he did get to make out with Nev Campbell and <laughs> It so worked like, out just Screw fine. For you guys.
1: For yeah. you guys. <laughs> I right. also love um, um I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you're good. You love. I love that Matthew Lillard um grew up out of this mo- during this movie out of this movie um SLC Punk all that stuff to mm-hmm. really carve a a, a Pretty successful career for himself. Yep. He's. I don't have any photos in here um, in these pictures that are not from screen, but he is a pretty steadily working actor yep. and is a pretty good actor. He's also he plays um, mm, Scrap Scooby Doo. is what is this? Scooby Doo? Yeah, he's. he's, uh,
2: he's
1: it's yeah. not Scrap. What the? What
2: is it? He's shaggy,
3: shaggy, shaggy, shaggy. shaggy in the Scooby Scrappy. Movies. Yes, absolutely. And I could
2: not, I could not place it. I was <laughs> drawing a <laughs> blank, I was watching yeah. last night and I went on Once. IMDb and I'm looking at his, his, his history and yeah. I'm like, I must've, I must've thought that the Scooby-Doo stuff I saw was like a video game or something <laughs> like, yes, it's freaking Scooby-Doo. But one yes. of the things that I love <laughs> about Matthew yes.
1: Lillard is he is completely believable as Shaggy and he's Absolutely believable here is Stu, especially Mm -hmm. in some of the ad libs and stuff that he that he adds to make him very much this type of teenager. And I think he does a terrific job.
2: Let's talk about that idea, the ad libs, because it, it applies both to Matthew Lillard and to Jamie Kennedy. Jamie Kennedy basically got the part because in his audition. He made Wes Craven laugh by with just some of the offhand comments that he was making, and the kids. Just, Wes Craven was just like, yeah, this kid's great. Yeah, this is absolutely him. Let's let's hire him, right? But Matthew Lillard also. So essentially, going into this movie, Jamie Kennedy's character, Matthew Lillard's character in the script are not really well developed, right? They don't really have any character to them. They are both ad libbers. They both came from comedy backgrounds. They both came from you know working in uh, troops, um, you know... Of, of, Improv of troops, to, yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, exactly right. And so they are both used to just bouncing things off of the other actors. And there are line after line after line that you can see in this movie that were just absolutely ad mm-hmm. right? I mean, one of the favorites is... Um, they stick on a scene right near the end, right? And the climax after uh, Sydney has gone away and she calls them and she's using Ghostface voice and she says, I already called the cops. And Stu's bleeding out because, you know, Billy stabbed him too much. He went all psycho on him. And he's just like laying there on the table and there's a scene where Billy's talking and then leaves. But the camera stays on Sue and he just kind of like re-picks up the phone and says, did you really call the cops? She's like, yeah. And I was like, my mom and dad are going to be so (laughs) mad at me. Right? That scene was supposed to end when Billy left the shot. And thank God that Wes Craven kept rolling on that scene because it's just so real and Mm -hmm. so funny. And so he's bleeding out, so his voice is trailing all over and he's getting all emotional. It's just freaking great. It's very funny.
0: As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch.
2: Those two guys especially, and maybe this is why Skeet Ulrich didn't have a, a bigger, better career like Jamie Kennedy did or like Matthew Lillard did. Hey, Andy. Because they're just, they're, they're just good at what they do. And listen, as a, as a psycho and the quote-unquote caring boyfriend, Skeet Ulrich does a great job playing Billy Loomis. Yep. I mean, you know, you're, you think it's him, then you don't think it's him. And this is exactly what Sidney is going through. Is it him? Is it not him? It could right. possibly be him. Oh, crap. It's him. We think the same thing because of the great performance by Skeet Eldridge, but he just wasn't able to continue that on, and both Lillard and Kennedy were able to.
1: And I agree with you, and I think specifically one of the things that um, Jamie Kennedy and Matthew Lillard bring to this, among other things, of course, is is their ability to create— humanity around their character. Mm -hmm. And I think they do that from some of those little improv notes. Um, We talked about, uh, Scott talks about a lot in the movie Predator. One of the things that you get is each of the characters when you meet them has a little bit of a character tick. Like the guy who shaves his face with the safety razor removed Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Just a... That reminds you, this is a human being, and I think you get that with the um, the personal notes, and and some of them were surely scripted. Obviously, Jamie Kennedy's character is not all improv, and that's so well right. written. But and we all knew that nerd. We all knew that nerd. I was that nerd who worked at yeah, Blockbuster some of Video. Us, <laughs> I
2: think all of us were that nerd. <laughs> yeah,
1: I was. Hey, you know, I was in that the nerd. second sequel, uh, this happens, and uh, <laughs> exactly. oh no, you're wrong about that, Mister. Yeah. But that said, some of those little bitty personal <laughs> improv things that created a character around a humanity around the character in the script is part of the reason i think that they have a lasting impression and mm-hmm. add to the to the drama because literally that scene you just described with matthew lillard in the scene that comes right before that when matthew lillard's character Stu is dying uh he's weak he's bleeding out he's he's literally saying like dude i think i'm bleeding out mm-hmm. and then the script comes back and snaps back into place and he almost kills he's he he chokes and almost kills Sydney, mm-hmm. which that human being couldn't do at that moment in that human being's life bleeding out. But you don't care at all when he gets back on the phone and he's funny and Stu again, you know, and I think that is a big reason that the movie kind of works. Um, Honestly,
2: right before he does that mom and dad line, when Billy leaves the scene, he throws the phone and it hits <laughs> it hits Stu right in the back of the head. And he just, this is totally something, Scott. You and I could have possibly had this conversation at some point. He just leans back and goes, hit me with the phone, dick. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, like, yes, that's what you would say when yeah. you're a teenager and somebody hits you in the head with the phone, right? <laughs> so real. And there's there's no way that line was scripted. No right. way. No, right, just right, right, great. right, right. Uh, Lillard totally stole, he stole the show in almost yeah. all of the scenes. He was a- almost... Almost too much in a lot of the scenes because he was just so effortlessly over the top good that it made the people who are playing the straight roles look like they were not very good actors and actresses.
1: Except it that the movie's a... so over the top. I think if he does, there's a great movie called SLC Punk, and I think he's great in it. And I think you see some of what Scott's saying in that movie where he's so always on you know we also see this in later when the new like the Apatow movies start the whole genre of the Apatow movies and you see that and you see that with Seth Rogen movies as well there's a sort of a lovable loser character who always punches up and always wins kind of and that's the sort of thing that I think Matthew Lillard and Jamie Kennedy are doing but because the rest of the movie is just so absurd it's this giant big bloody crazy thing that it sort of works and it sort of he, it tethers it to the earth kind yeah. of a little bit. I know that's probably too dramatic of a phrase to say for screen, but it sort of does. It gives, <laughs> gives all the blood a, a, a place to land. Now we will uh, go over something we love to go over
2: in these movies. The who could have been, the also-rans, the people who could have been in it. Yeah. Joaquin Phoenix turned down the role of Billy Loomis. Elizabeth Berkeley auditioned <laughs> for the role of Gail Weathers, <laughs> but was immediately turned down due to the backlash she received from Showgirls. Yeah, that's crazy.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, unfortunately, that wasn't all her. It, she didn't do a great job in the role, but they also way overhyped that movie. Yes. Because Paul Verhoeven thought he was going to be the next, I don't know who, but somebody that did not. Now, this helpful. is one I would love to I, see. Honestly, just
2: the scene of them having sex in the pool was enough that she should never have worked again. So, I mean, I mean I, I, uh, listen, I've had some wild women. I've never seen anybody have an epileptic seizure like that when we were in the middle of the coitus, okay? So, I'm just saying... That's that should have been it for her right there. Well, you know what? Find her, ask her out, maybe can make that happen. Uh, Brooke Shields she is from Michigan. I'll just point. Yeah, she is Michigan girl. That's why we were familiar with her. Brooke Shields and Janine Garofalo were considered for Gale Weathers. I think Janine Garofalo should not have been anywhere near that role. That would not have worked. But I think Brooke Shields would have worked very good in that.
1: Uh, so Janine talk-
2: Garofalo was actually, I think she was actually offered the role, right? Okay. I mean, that was one of their first choices. That's the kind of person they were going through, the smarmy, smartass, and, and can play a bitch, right? Because yep. a lot of people just think that's Janine Garofalo's basic setting. Um, but it, it, so this is another one. We've said this before. Imagine some of the names Scott's saying. If they were in the cast rather than the people that were in there— I don't think this is a better movie with a different cast. Yeah. I mean, the, the cast was just... Just even down to, you know, stuff like Henry Winkler. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's just... The, the cast is so good in this movie.
1: Um, we talked earlier about Drew Barrymore uh, in the beginning of the movie and and agreed. I agree with Robbie that Drew Barrymore was the marquee star here. She was actually offered the role of Sidney Prescott at first, which, of course, we know went to Nev Campbell. And if this is true... Drew Barrymore is the one who's like, no, 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 no. Let me play Casey. Let me play Casey because no one will expect that I'll die in the first five minutes of the film. And it will show that the whole movie will be different. I don't care how it happened because that's actually true. But I love it a little bit more if it was Drew Barrymore's idea because at the time she was not only a star, she's also a Barrymore. Like it's she could have done anything she yeah. wanted. And to have her do that, I like that. This and they smartly,
2: she just they crushed put, that role too, right? God, oh, go yeah, oh, like she's great. She great. But they put like all the marketing. They were smart enough to have Drew Barrymore front and center. I mean, she's the first person you see in the trailer. She's the biggest person physically on the poster. That face, yep. when you see just the one that has her face, that's Drew Barrymore's face, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they were so smart about putting her front and center. And yeah, I, I mean, compare this to. Um, Alfred Hitchcock and Psycho. All right. So let me tell you this. So Janet Lee was one of the biggest stars of the day. Janet Lee, um, you know, play, plays the, the first woman in Psycho. And here's the thing that drove Alfred Hitchcock nuts. People back in the day would just kind of stroll into movies whenever they wanted to, because everything was so inane. You could miss the first 10, 10 minutes watching. and, you know, you wouldn't miss anything. You'd be able to figure out what the hell was going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Hitchcock. Hated that. And so he specifically did this. And and part of the poster for Psycho was, don't miss the first 10 minutes. Okay. Right? Said, you're going to, don't tell anybody when you leave, but trust me, don't miss the first 10 minutes. And he kills off Janet Lee, And, you know, the money she steals is really the MacGuffin that just gets everything started at the Bates Motel. Absolute same idea here. And mm-hmm. Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson, absolute geniuses. And whether it was Drew Barrymore's idea, some people say, She took the part of Sydney, and then she got offered a role in a Woody Allen movie. So she decided to do that movie instead. So she talked her way into a smaller role. I'm not (laughs) sure that's true, but she's only on set. She's on set for the first five days, and yet she is the centerpiece. Even you know the the tour when they would have you know they they talked to newspapers and TV stations and stuff. Drew Barrymore was one of the big people they would talk to. And she went the whole time without telling anybody that she's only in like eight minutes of this movie. I and mean, it was freaking absolutely genius, and I love it, and I think it makes the movie so much better. Mm-hmm. So much better. Because then her idea is nobody, you know, the rules of being in a horror movie, you don't kill off the biggest star. You always know the biggest star is going to last till the end. Yep. Because they're the biggest star, guess what? Boom, that rules out. That got everybody's attention. And people who could have had that role, Claire Danes, Molly Ringwald, Melissa Joan Hart, Brittany Murphy, Tori Spelling, who they get a dig on in the film, and Reese Witherspoon were considered for Sydney. And this is great. Matthew Lillard was cast by chance after accompanying (laughs) his then-girlfriend to an unrelated audition taking place somewhere else in the same building. That's bonkers. That's freaking great. That's the kind of stuff, those are the Hollywood stories you love to hear. You know, somebody discovered at the counter of a soda jerk, right? But yeah, his girlfriend has a uh, an audition and he goes with her as the supportive doting boyfriend. In the same billing building, they are testing for Billy Loomis. And he's just like, well, I'm here. I got a headshot in my car. Why don't I go ahead for this Billy Loomis? And of course, he didn't get that. But then they said, come back for Stu. And boom, thank goodness. Because as you said, Scott... <laughs> He steals this movie. He makes the show. He's so good.
1: Um, One one more point about uh, Drew Barrymore on set. You said she's only on set for five days. Um, If you're unfamiliar, you don't remember the very beginning of the movie. She spends almost all that time on the phone with the Ghostface killer, but we don't know that at the time. And then she dies at the end of that scene. When they gave her the phone on set, when the set dressers did that, they gave her a live telephone accidentally and... She called 911 until the police called the set back to say somebody keeps calling 911 because that's her job in the script. She picks up and dials 911. Why wouldn't you dial 911? So she did that dial. until they called the set and said quit pranking the, the police. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine being
2: a cop in Hollywood? That kind of stuff must happen. All the time. Somebody across the street sees a robbery taking place or a bank, you know, heist or something like that and calls 911 and they got to roll up. And It's just like, no, we're a film crew. We're yeah. <laughs> filming a movie about a bank heist. I mean, that must happen all the time in holly
1: well and it's a funny thing i before i did this i i spent some time as an event planner and um the amount of things you have to get a permit for with the city is extraordinary if you have more than 15 people gathering in some spaces in in a very congested space most of the time it's 25 or more but the Mm -hmm. reason you do that is so that they can call back and like they can call the operator and be like janice can you look this up is there anything at you know petco park today so that they don't do that. I can only imagine in Hollywood there's like 17 Janices working for, for that yeah, reason.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Always going through the, thank goodness it's all digitized now so that they can just bring up an address and see if there's a working permit <laughs> Exactly, going can out. you that's imagine? That's a great point, Hey, That is an excellent point. Yeah. Let's, we we got to talk, of course, about the voice. oops get Robbie back up here. We got to talk about the voice of Ghostface, Roger Jackson. He is also the voice of the monkey villain Mojo, jo, Mojo Jojo in Powderpuff Girls. Mm. Same they voice. Seem- and he has an extensive, <laughs> <laughs> an extensive voice acting career. Uh, the producers had originally intended to use Roger Jackson's voice only as a placeholder, mm-hmm. dumbing it over during post-production, but they decided to keep him. Yeah, hmm. so which, which is great. You know, come in there. You just do that. And again, on set to kind of creep the girls out, never actually meeting them. And so when she's holding the phone, he's actually on the other end, right? I mean, and obviously they overdubbed. His voice, but he's actually on the other end talking to the girls in that creepy voice. And they just loved it so much. So yeah, his performance forced them to keep him in the movie. That's freaking great. Drew, obviously his impact on Drew with the voice was great. Question about this movie. Question. (laughs) It's a brilliant screenplay. There's going to be a couple minor little things, but one minor thing is why does everybody feel so compelled to pick up the phone when it rings? From the killers to Drew Barrymore to Nev Campbell, everybody's like, phone rings. They have,
1: they know it's a scary guy on the other side. (laughs) No, no. Okay, look, I got, I got several things to say here. You're not wrong. That's totally true. Uh huh. It's 1996, you guys. There are several of you watching who might not have been alive in 1996. So let me lay it out for you. There is no cell phone, there is no computer that you can get on and chat with your friend. There's no AIM, there's no, Texting. There's no FaceTime. There's nothing like this. There's no caller ID. There's not. So when the phone rings in the house, part of the reason you pick it up is that's how you were socialized and educated by your parents. And for me, growing up in a military house, mine was I had to answer the phone politely. So that's why. A big reason why is that's just who we were back then. And now... Gosh, if you call me, I'm gonna wait for the phone to stop ringing and text you to ask what you need. That's me personally. But
0: back oh yeah, in the day, yeah, I had
1: it's no
2: always choice. like I don't know who you're calling before, but could this be a text? Because it should just be a text. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't exactly. answer. I don't answer phone numbers I don't know anymore. But you're right. Now there is that moment in, um, you know, in, in the opening scene with Drew Barrymore as, as Casey, and they try to get her to hang up and dial 911 but he redials so quickly that she can't even pick up the phone and dial 911 so you know it's uh yeah it is kind of training and we're all trained to do it but Yeah, and then when Sydney picks up the phone, she doesn't know it's Ghostface yet. And
1: uh,
3: yeah, but I I agree. I do agree that at some some
1: point they can stop (laughs) and run out of the house. Stop answering. The 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 best part is when the killers,
2: who have stabbed themselves and established they have no motive other than they are just crazy kids, phone rings. The killers pick up the (laughs) phone. Well, but though, although Stu Matthew Lillard does say. Should I let the machine get it? (laughs) We got to talk about the mask. Of course, the mask has become iconic. It is up there with Freddy Krueger's hat and sweater and claws, Michael Myers' mask, Jason Mm -hmm. Voorhees, uh, the hockey mask. Uh, It is, when they made this, the production team had a lot of sketches and ideas for the killer's mask, but nothing worked. Then on a location scout, a producer saw the, quote, peanut-eyed ghost, end quote, mask, and everyone loved it. They tried to create their own version, but it didn't work, so they just tracked down the Fun World Mask Company <laughs> and negotiated World. to include it in the film, but they had to agree to rename it. Fun World came up with the name Ghostface. How I cool hope is Fun that? Fun World got uh,
1: like some royalty
2: for that. I, I, hope, I hope they got a recurring oh. royalty, not a flat fee. I, I, I believe they did. I, I mean, seriously, I think they are still making money. Plus, they get to manufacture the mask. Oh, course, good, it's always, good, good. There's always the cheap knockoffs that you see at, like, Party City and that kind of stuff. Right, but yeah. the official Ghostface mask is still, to this day, made by the fun world company. So, so I, that's pretty cool.
1: Another kind of cool little—I'm not really sure if it's an Easter egg here, but whatever you would call this— um, Sort of related to today, um, the original title for this per- this movie and this franchise was Scary Movie. Mm-hmm. And they named it Scary Movie. That's what the script was called. That's what the working title was called. That was the whole shoot, the whole production. If you're unfamiliar, often film productions, especially ones that take several months, get some sort of like a jacket or a jean jacket or hat or T-shirts that have the name of the movie on them as a memento. They all said Scary Movie. And then the Uh Weinstein brothers decided to change the movie's name from Scary Movie to Scream kind of right before it came out. All the clothes were – or the crew already had clothes, all that jazz. They'd been being paid for Scary Movie. Um, And they changed it to Scream because of a a Jackson – Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson song, song called Scream. But what I love is when the spoof of this movie comes out, which is cool. also brilliant, they name it Scary Movie. I love Clever. that. I love that.
2: Stuff. And honestly, during the whole movie, they don't say mm-hmm. horror movies. It might be because you say that phrase out loud and it sounds like horror movies. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's a, you know, we're not talking about Pretty Woman here. Um, but uh, that's the idea that, that they didn't say horror movies. They say Scary Movie about. 30 times mm-hmm. in this movie. So it's, uh, I, I even it's run lovely. into that. Try and tell people I'm a horror author. You you do. To, yeah. Horror, if, yeah. horror. You have to get horror, that out. horror. Some wonderful Easter eggs in here in this movie. Tons of them. It. Billy's love last him. name is Loomis. Same as Donald Pleasance's psychiatrist. Don, Donald Pleasants' psychiatrist character in Halloween. Tatum tells Sidney it's like they are in a, quote, Wes Carpenter flick, end quote. That was some of the things, some of the things where they were talking about movies or this part of the movie and then showing themselves doing that part of the movie was just great. Casey Becker's neighbors are the Mackenzies, the same as Laurie Strode's. Linda Blair from The Exorcist has a cameo as a pushy reporter. So good. So clever. And it's just, yeah, they just, and they reference a lot of those movies. I mean, they reference The Exorcist. That's what Billy Loomis is talking about when he's saying, you know, it's like our love life has become edited for TV like the movie The Exorcist. And there's, you know, two scenes later, there's frickin' Linda Blair yeah. as, a, yeah. as a reporter. It's just it's just well done. Um, I want to talk about Rose McGowan because we didn't talk about her before. Well, we talked about a couple aspects of Rose McGowan's <laughs> performance. Um, but, you know, so in her scene, which is which is cool, and, and honestly, the, I, I, let's say Billy and Stu finish this off and everything happens exactly it, and, you know, Sydney's dad gets framed for the whole thing and all this stuff. They would have sat back, and I'm assuming that Stu in the killer's suit, then, because if he's gonna, if somebody's gonna kill his girlfriend, it's gonna be him, right? right. Um, they would sit around and go, "Okay, who had the best kill?" And Stu would be like, oh, I got one for you. My girl got caught in the cat door and then decapitated by the uh, the garage door <laughs> opener. I mean, that's the kill of the day, yeah, right there. <laughs> but it's so funny. So that scene." Uh, despite her assets um <laughs> apparently Rose McGowan is such a tiny human being that the cat door a standard size cat door she can get through it like she found out she was just like if I ever get locked out of a house I now know I can get <laughs> through a cat door so they actually had to like nail her shirt to the door so it looked like she was struggling to get through cuz she could have just zipped right through that thing and boy this would have been a different movie if she gets away so yeah it's uh it, it's it's just funny the little things that Uh, come from the story, from the set that you find out like years later when people are talking about their performances.
1: Uh, This is what you just mentioned. That scene you just mentioned is one of the other things that Scott finds unrealistic about the screen movies. There are many, many, but he's like, would a garage door really decapitate a human being? Yeah, I I was a little fired up watching that. I'm like, I don't think a garage
2: door has the torque necessary to (laughs) fracture A a, a human vertebrae. I don't think that is accurate. Did you start looking up like the horsepower of a Sears, uh, you know, a, a 220, generation 220, nine garage door opener, and you know? grab some screenshots of that model? Let's see, uh, rewire it. Oh, oh, oh! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, this I absolutely love. Um, I lost it. during production. Ghostface's signature black robe was going to be white to make him to appear to be even more of a ghost. This was changed in fear of people comparing the costume to those the Ku Klux Klan wore. <laughs>
1: I think this was a good, good move. call. <laughs> that
2: was a good call. Plus, that, was, that plus, was an
1: excellent decision.
2: The black outfit looked just so. It looked like a cheap Halloween costume. It was perfect, yep. but the black and the shadow framing the the face made the face float a little bit more. You would not have had such a striking contrast. I agree with you. With 100%. The percent
1: yeah, without the frame of the black, I think that would look yep. a little less. Yeah, it would a little have washed less it out scary. More.
2: It just felt menacing, and and it made them look you know bigger with the like the rags on and that kind of stuff. And you're right, white. A lot of times you can see through, you know, white cloth, especially those cheap Halloween costumes to what's underneath. So, yeah, no, it was uh, it was an excellent choice and it didn't get them in trouble with the NAACP. So that was probably a a, a smart move. I will say
1: also the Ghostface killer, when we talk about that, we almost exclusively are talking about the mask. When people say Ghostface, they're talking about that scream mask. Mm -hmm. However, I will say one of my favorite parts of that costume is when Sydney is alone in the bathroom at the high school, and she's sure she's not alone and she keeps looking under the stalls. And then she finally like gets up and brushes off her hands and turns back to the sink. And you see um, the killer put one foot down and then lower the little jagged edged hem <laughs> of the ghost face yeah. costume. And you're like, oh, Lord, even though. I wore those costumes when I was a kid. That cheap-ass material was not terribly scary, not going (laughs) to lie.
2: Not at all. Let's talk about the boots for a minute, because I think this is another, and and this is, I imagine this is more Wes Craven than Kevin Williamson, right? But but it is written more as a mystery than a horror movie. I mean, yes, there are killings. There's 50 gallons of blood that they use on set. I mean, all that kind of stuff. But the idea is, who the hell is the killer, Mm -hmm. right? And in a lot of these horror movies, the killer comes out and identifies themselves right away you don't have to guess who the killer is you know who the killer is right from the beginning but that scene i remember i specifically remember when i saw this for the first time you see the boots come down and a little earlier than that the the ghost face killer says um you know something about wiping you off my boots or, or something like that right so it's just the boots two scenes later the sheriff is smoking a cigarette and talking to Dewey, and he drops his cigarette and he puts it out. He's wearing the exact same type of boots. So ah! I'm kind of like, ah ha, ha. I am this smart guy. I know the things that are going on. It's obviously the sheriff, and so I just think this is one of the movies between the writing and the directing. They tried to throw in as many red herrings as possible. And mm-hmm. honestly, at different points of the movie, you think it might be Randy. You think it might be Dewey. Right. I mean, there's there's all these reasons and people, you know, start saying, well, it's the millennium. You don't, you don't really need a reason to be a psycho right now. So and that, that was it's just it's just well done. That was one of the things that they not only turned it on its head. They 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 took the trope, They turned it on its head. They openly talk about how it's so meta on a third or fourth level that the killers are saying it's because we don't have a motive. Yep, that we no one is going to suspect us if we are wounded. It gets really deep, and that that was a uh, that was pretty pretty cool. All that meta stuff clever. going done. really well written, really smart. And then and then they throw so much information at you that it must be Billy Loomis. Like everybody believes it must be Billy Loomis. That there's like, well, there's no way it's going to be freaking Billy Loomis because that would be so obvious. And then boom, they hit you with it. Oh, clever, clever. Uh Citizen Gold in the chat room, thank you for Mount Fitzroy and OJ from way back, started with EarthCore and manually copying the file from an RSS downloader to the media player for the walk to work. Nice. Glad you enjoyed that, sir, and I hope you enjoyed Mount Fitzroy even as much. This is Crazy About Scream to Me. So we watched it again last night. It's a, basically a comedy with blood, in a way. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. comedy mystery. Yep. It is Scooby-Doo in a way, just living with blood. <laughs> you know, but there's there's very little in the way of really gruesome deaths. There's some sliced throats. There's some stabbing, but there's you know there's hints at entrails and Drew more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the insides become the outsides, or you know cut off heads, cut off limbs. The stuff that made Saw the Saw series so utterly mm-hmm. gruesome. None of that is in Scream. It's a rather pedestrian slasher flick. The film was originally given an NC-17 rating for being too gruesome. And you think about what we watch now. You go back and like that is too gruesome. Yeah, Craven refused to cut anything, but eventually the movie was edited and resubmitted to the
1: studio nine times before it was given an R rating. So I could, I don't know what they cut out of it. Well, but here's well, and it could just be. I mean, the MPAA is a little bit of a crazy business anyway, so... But it could, it could have been, be, like, entrails, right? It, that absolutely. And Steven, it could have just been Wes Craven Casey. coming back a million times and them saying, like, fine, just fine, just cut out this one bit of blood and then you'll be fine, which they are historically known for doing. I will say, um, the uh, one of the things that I find interesting is, I think that there, we, we've talked to several times that there are other sort of, I don't know what to call them other than sort of game-changing movies, and... I agree with you that this isn't really a horror movie as much as it's it's a thriller like a murder mystery. Mm-hmm. In the same way, bear with me, that Brick by Ryan Johnson is this sort of noir forty skin put on a high school mini mystery sort of thing. And I think that they they both kind of take rules of of a genre or engagement and and follow them but then they mix it with another genre like so this is sort of a teen slasher movie but it also follows the rules of all horror movies in a, in like a meta like as you say Robbie a meta yeah. way and i think that that um, obviously could not work at all and i'm sure we've all seen terrible movies we can't remember because it didn't work but when it does work it's amazing mm-hmm. i think and it stands
2: up right just watching it again last night it wasn't I mean, again there's always going to be little things and mm-hmm. yeah you know why? Why do you run up the stairs? It's just like the stupidest place to run. I mean, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> they mention yeah. that, and then she actually does run up the yeah, stairs. Yeah, she says it, then she runs up the stairs. Yeah, exactly. I did right. want to say it holds up extremely. extremely
1: well. Yeah, and I will say this as well. This is not exactly the best way it holds up, but there has there have been several court cases after Scream came out for disturbed human beings who. Went on a mini crime spree and stabbing spree. Who said they were trying to be cool like the ghost-faced killer as part of mm-hmm. their defense? There were four of them. None of the movie defense didn't work for any of them. In in two of them, that was the pr- the prosecutor's pitch was well, they were these kids were inspired by watching Scream. And uh, in two of those cases, the judge was like, all right, get out of my courtroom with your bullshit. Yeah. You can't mention the movie. Just can't mention wait, wait, the movie. The, the kids were trying to be cool like the killer in Scream? I don't understand. Yeah. So and in January 1988, 1998, sorry, a 16-year-old uh, Mario Padilla and his Padilla and his 14-year-old cousin Samuel stabbed Mario's mother 45 times, Ooh, killing her. The wow. case became known as the Scream murder. Um because under intense media scrutiny, the boys claimed they were inspired by Scream and Scream 2. The pair confessed to needing money acquired from Gina's murder to fund their killing spree, which would include pay- purchasing two ghost-faced costumes as well as the same voice changer that was used in the movie. So when the trial started, their attorney brought this up and said, you know, they were influenced or whatever. And the judge was like, hang tight, going to my chambers, came back and was like, yeah, can't mention that movie at all in your in your – Defense, not at all. Does it's not relevant. They didn't do that. They didn't purchase the ghost. Not relevant. So those children were convicted of being assholes um, and murderers. Oh, so they, they were. They were the children were trying to use. We watch this
2: movie. It made us do this awful thing as their defense. Yep. Yes, I got it. Okay. Uh,
1: and now, then which, that happened Which is again,
2: funny because I, you know Billy's line is uh, movies don't make people psycho. Uh, movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. so I mean that's kind of the defense like these kids are psychos they're just using this as an excuse and You're it is funny a... to say that the, the, the you know the theme of Scream 2 is exactly that right yeah the, the killers there wanted to put scary movies on trial. So that it be this big media sensation, and then it's funny. Kids go out there and kill people and try to do exactly the same thing. So <laughs> art imitating life or imitating art.
1: But it's always an interesting. No, why? Why does nobody who uses a movie defense? Why doesn't the def- the people who have to defend against t- that defense be like? I mean, there were no horror movies when the Black Dahlia was murdered. Like, come on, man, mm-hmm. that's not yeah, relevant. That's right. Like, why not just pull also, other movie?
2: Yes, bullshit. Here's out. the number. Here's the number of ticket sales: two hundred <laughs> million. How many people murdered? Two. Okay. <laughs> so I'm saying the odds are saying maybe the movie didn't exactly have anything to uh, do with it. That's a great point, Robbie. One more <laughs> one more story from the set. Uh, this is one of those uh, be careful what you, what you ask yeah. for situations. Yep. Director of photography Mark Irwin was fired a week Ooh. before the shooting was to end. Director Wes Craven, upon reviewing the dailies, found that the footage was out of focus and unusable, and Irwin was ordered to fire and replace his camera crew. I guess being a stand-up guy, when Irwin responded that "Well, you have to fire me too," Wes Craven did exactly that.
1: <laughs> and if you're gonna if you're gonna step to Wes Craven about photography and yeah. being your being the DP, maybe maybe you should think that through. It's mm-hmm. one thing if this is a scrubbed behind the ears kid who's never held a camera before, but that's not Wes Craven. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. Yeah.
2: so but yeah, so even even on something like this that managed to come in. Under budget, it probably went over time because obviously they had to reshoot that whole week's worth of stuff, obviously. so, um, But still managed to come in on budget and still obviously was so well received. Although, one other quick story. This movie did not come out in Halloween of 1996. It came out in December. And this was the studio's idea. We've got all these high school kids who are out on holiday break And they're bored as heck with all the usual Christmas family movie stuff. Let's give them something else to watch. And the first week, it only made like $5 bucks, And they're like, oh, what a disaster. But then every one of those kids that saw it the first week told 50 other kids to go see it the next week. And it built and built. And it ended up being one of the top movies for like 18 straight weeks or something like that. And that's where it made its money was on, you know, just the people talking about it and sending the next people to go see it. And so odd decision to release this kind of movie in December, just like it's an odd decision that the next one's coming out next week in January. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what the word about. They, they seem to have that right. Although now do you, uh, Rob, do you have any info on, is this a theatrical only release or will it be releases streaming? I believe it's theatrical only. Although I have to admit, I don't know for sure, but I believe it's theatrical only. All right.
1: All right. So I think we are done for uh, this episode of Story Smack. Thank you so much, Robbie. Um, we Always uh, awesome. Always awesome, yeah. We are always here the second Saturday of each month. Our next uh, Story Smack is February 12th, when mm-hmm. we'll be discussing the classic Spinal Tap. Woo! Getting away from our yes. thriller genre a little, but it's going to be And exciting. we're doing Spinal Tap
2: because the Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl are in a movie that is being released in February called Studio 666, mm-hmm. where they go into a haunted mansion to record their 10th <laughs> album, and things go horribly, horribly wrong. What so a great rock movies. A couple, concept, of rock movies, <laughs> a couple of good rock movies. Now, now Scott, you should, you should make the screen black right now, and then I could ask you, how much more black could it be? And the answer, <laughs> of course, would be none. None more None black. more black.
1: It's true. oh he's doing it. Rob, how much more <laughs> black
2: could this screen be, Rob? None. None more black. Oh, I should do it in a British accent. None. None more black. This podcast goes, goes to 11. Tap. The yeah, said, <laughs> turn it up to 11. Yes, it will be turned up to 11. <laughs> All right, Robbie. We will we'll see you next you. month. We'll see you next You're month. You're the
1: best. See you next month. All right. And uh, that is it for episode uh, 78 of Story Smack. You can find Scott and I online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram. And his Facebook page is Facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I'm at A Real girl on Twitter and at A.Real.Girl on Instagram. And you can find us online at Facebook.com
2: slash Story Smack. We live stream Story Smack every second Saturday of the month at facebook.com slash scott sigler twitch.tv slash scott and youtube.com slash scott sigler
1: we hope that you subscribe and we hope that you enjoy scott's books and more from story smack and scott and i and empty set in the future in addition, to Story Smack, we do a once
2: weekly live stream called Sigler <laughs> in Place on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. wherever you are watching this. If you are just listening to this, same addresses: Twitch.tv/sigler, Facebook.com/sigler, and YouTube.com/sigler.
1: And of course, as I just mentioned, we also release once weekly an unabridged episode of a serialized novel of Scott's every week. You can get episodes free for ev- on free every Sunday via iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. Just go to ScottSigler.com slash subscribe for links. All right, baby. And I think that's it. Okay. Until the next episode,
2: when we turn it up to 11, (laughs) (laughs) we will talk to you all real soon. (laughs)